from the Yale Broadcast Studio. This is The Big Picture with Bella Bears Bankrader. Emma Sky, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bella Bess. Really lovely to to have this conversation with you, especially after what was an incredible, uh, nourishing, inspiring weekend, the 20-year reunion of the World Fellows Program. Um, I, I think we had some 170 participants, uh, former fellows coming from all continents, Really, really amazing. What were some of the moments that uh, that stood out for you? I mean, you played such a critical role in in making turning this program into what it has become ever since you started in 2014. Well, thank you. I mean, it was one of those weekends. I think that anyone who was there will remember for the rest of their lives. It was amazing to see people coming. And as you were saying, they came from Australia, from Hong Kong, Indonesia, all different bits of Africa, Latin America. And I think after years of COVID, people miss that interaction. I really honestly wasn't expecting that many people to turn up. That was half our network came. There were some who didn't come. We have three in the network who are prisoners of conscience. Alexei Navalny, Hakan Altineh and Felix from Nicaragua. So we had chairs set aside for them, and I think it made everybody feel, yes, it's not just a lot of fun coming together. We are a community of people who really do believe in creating a better world, standing up for your beliefs, and three who are prisoners of conscience for speaking their minds, speaking what they believe in, wanting to make their countries a better place. So I think that sense of community, that some fellows had never met other fellows before, to bring everyone together and to feel by the end of the weekend, we're not fellows from particular years, we're a community of world fellows. Beautiful, and I I think you did that so gracefully, um, how we talked about Alexei Navalny and other world fellows who are paying a high price for their advocacy for freedom and democracy and all of these values that we espouse and hold dear. Um, but the weekend, I, I can I can only second what you said. It was absolutely incredible. The energy was so positive. There were so many insights that came out, um, new friendships, uh, r- reviving old friendships. And, uh, you know, in fact, I hosted people uh, on Saturday night at home for the first time since the pandemic. And so... So it's it's really it was really so beautiful. What were some of the moments that uh, stood out for you? Is there one or two anecdotes that uh, that you have from from the weekend that uh, you'd like to share? I think, you know, when we had those three empty seats for the prisons of conscience, and to see everybody stand up and clap for them, that sense we live in a world at the moment which is so defined by identity. Everybody is very much obsessed with their identity. And yet to see people coming together like they came together, initially it's natural that you will just be with your cohort because you spent that time together at Yale. But as you saw as the weekend went along, people met people from different 
countries, different continents, different cohorts. And it was that sense that if you can imagine the world you want to live in, if you've got that vision for it, you can create it. You can create that shared experience. It always interests me when World Fellows first come for their four months at Yale. And at the beginning, those 16 people will look at each other and you'll be conscious of how people look, their skin color, their accent, so kind of what country they're from or what gender is. And in a very short period of time, that becomes quite irrelevant. It's then where do fellows live, that those who live in like Chapel Street spend more time together and those living prospects spend more time together. So geographical location matters. But it's the shared experience. You know that anyone who's a world fellow has been through a similar experience to you. So I think for this whole weekend, it showed that you can bring people together and create that global solidarity, create that sense of we're all in this together. There's not a lot we can do about the past. We can do a lot about the present and we can really do a lot about the future. And when you really see people who are committed to that and coming together, not just to admire the problems of the world, but to actually look at what they're going to do to fix it. So when you saw our big dinner and the, the party that came afterwards, and you could see people taking photos together, dancing together, sharing these experiences, creating memories, and that's what bonds people together as humans, which surpasses every other aspect. And that, for me, just the scene when people were saying goodbye to each other, people were almost, you know, they were quite emotional. Yeah. And really committed that we will stay connected, we will support each other, we will commit to doing these things to make the world a better place. So it kind of felt that we'd all got rockets underneath us when we left. And that was something that you think, gosh, I've got to keep that rocket under me. It truly was incredible. And your speech on Friday night, it really deserved the standing ovations that it got. It was beautifully crafted. The delivery was incredible. And I, you know, in this conversation, we're going to talk a lot about the themes that, um, that um, you dealt with in that, in that speech. Um, I just want to say about the weekend, uh, it, you know, truly, I mean, I mean World Fellows has changed my life personally, as you know, <laughs> in very personal <laughs> ways. I, uh, I came in, uh, to the program in 2016, and um, I have lived in New Haven ever since I married Zoe Chance, the love of my life, met her. I would not have met her had it not been for the World Fellows program. I only invited her along to give a talk to the World Fellows. <laughs> I wasn't expecting, you know, you to take a shine to her and then the next thing I know, <laughs> dating and then married. <laughs> Actually, Zoe and I were wondering, are there other stories of, uh, of that kind? In the, are you aware of any World Fellows that met or married other World Fellows or met uh, a long-term partner through the program? It's funny you should ask that because during the reunion, I was introducing a few women to each other and I said, you belong to this particular club. And they were looking at each other, not knowing what was the club. And I said, you're women who spent time as world fellows, and as a result of that, divorced your husbands. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't seen any fellows marry, but we've seen a number, after their time here, think, 
they're not happy in their personal circumstances. There's so much what they want more that they want to do in the world, and their marriages are hampering them, hindering them from doing that. So that was kind of, yeah, we've got quite a few in that category. Interesting. One other moment that was um, uh, uh, during the closing on Sunday, we were talking, Daniel made a point that I thought was was really interesting. And he mentioned that, you know, just this weekend, he he met somebody who lives a few miles from his home. And uh, and then he met somebody else who was from Madrid, where he was flying, and he should have arrived by now. And and so he was asking, is there any way that uh, there could be perhaps a map or some some way we could track where world fellows are? But I think I think he's onto something there. If there's a way to um, allow fellows to to connect, all the while respecting their privacy. Um, It, I think there's so much there, you know. I um, I know that fa- there is a Facebook group, and and yet there are people who no longer use Facebook, such as myself, because of how I feel about the company and how it destroyed democracy. We can get into some of those themes as well, but um, yeah, that that I thought was food for thought. <laughs> At one level, it terrifies me. It's kind of you think, gosh, how come you were in our town and you didn't contact us? But I think it it shows that people want to have that connection. On the website, you can just go into the search thing, what town you're going to, what country you're going to, and you'll find who the fellows are who are there, right. which is what I use. But obviously, that's not high tech. Yeah. Um, that is actually uh, something I wasn't, I haven't used nearly enough. Um, so it's, that's that's good to know. Well, I was just saying, you know, when I first got to Yale, I was sort of coming out of a long time in the wars in the Middle East and feeling so lonely in the world. And then, now, when I look around the world, I can't think of a country I could go to where I don't have a world fellow or a student. And that really is, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate for that. But it is this sense that if you invest time and if you invest effort, you can make friends from any place in the world. You can build those relationships. And I think that's another thing that people saw this weekend, that people came with open hearts and came and they had the time and the willingness to reflect that actually, perhaps one of the most important things in the world is friendship, it is fellowship. Absolutely. So. Let's talk, Emma, a little bit about uh, some of the themes the reunion touched on over the weekend. We have a lot of inspiring panels. Um, we had your speech, which really set the tone for uh, many of the conversations on Saturday and Sunday. Saturday morning, we had a panel about the uh, the state of the world, um, which did discuss a lot of the geopolitical questions that you and I will be talking about today. Um, but... Um, You know, one concept that we have discussed uh, in private oftentimes that is really fascinating is this idea that we might be living in a time where history is about to 
return. This, of course, stems from the idea of uh, Frank Fukuyama, who published a famous essay called The End of History. And that essay um, really announces uh, that the, the competition of systems with which societies organize politically had come to an end with the fall of communism, with the fall of the Iron Curtain, that liberal democracy and a capitalist economic model had prevailed. And so that history uh, of competing ideas uh, of how societies should be organized had come to an end. And that idea seemed very compelling. Uh, certainly in the 90s, it, was, it, it, it also seemed inarguable in some ways because it was just manifestly uh, it was, you know, the model of communism uh, and the uh, Soviet Republic had just been defeated. And we go into this time of the world that is a unipolar moment where America is the single most important geopolitical power in the world. We are essentially in a G1 world. Talk a little bit about you know, how in the decades since that G1 world has unfolded. You did an amazing job uh, at this during the speech and kind of outlined the key stages of those last 30 years. I'd love for you to do this, especially for fellows who didn't have a chance to attend and, and maybe a broader uh, group of people who might, might be listening. So I was, you know, a student when the Cold War came to an end. And... You know, incredible being a student when the wall comes down, Mandela's released from jail, the Middle East peace process kicks off. It's all of those things of what's possible. And, you know, for those of us who came of age in that time, you're a bit younger than me, but you grew up in that world as well. It was a sense of the future is going to be so bright Lots of work needs to be done, but the trajectory is a positive one. And while I was still a student, um, the first Gulf War happened. So Saddam's forces invaded Kuwait. And President Bush the senior goes to the UN, gets a Security Council resolution to push Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. He puts together a coalition of 35 countries including most countries from the Arab world. And he announces on the eve of that war that this is a war to create a new world order, that the law of the jungle will not be allowed. This is a new era that's to come, an era of the rule of law, of the United Nations, of, of all of those things. And it was a very quick war. Saddam's forces were quickly kicked out of Kuwait and the new world order was proclaimed. That was the way to go. And within days of that finishing, President Bush says, now we're going to end conflict between Israel and the Arab states. And the Middle East peace, Middle East peace process kicked off in, I think it was October 1991 in Madrid. And that started a whole series of conferences that eventually through a kind of different path led to the Oslo Accords. But you can look, you know, Mandela released from jail, apartheid came to an end. 
the troubles in Northern Ireland were brought to an end with the Good Friday Agreement. It was this period of time. We saw NATO expansion taking in the countries of Eastern Europe into a security community of Western Europe. The European Union expanded. There were new institutions and new norms, the International Criminal Court, the responsibility to protect so that dictators would be held to account for what they were doing. So it was this very, very optimistic period looking back. We want to know that, that, you know, we all thought this was the way things were going to be from now on. And then 9-11 happened. And I think when you look back now, 9-11, not the event itself, but the way in which America responded to the event was what led to the beginning of the end of history, if I can describe it that way. The beginning of the end of the end of history. Beginning of the end of the end of history. (laughs) (laughs) So, or we could just call it the return of history. Or the return of history. (laughs) Um, So, talk a little bit more about that moment, uh, 2001. We have these devastating terror attacks in New York and, um, and Washington. And as you said, it's not so much about 9-11 itself, but what followed that heralded something new, something different was set in motion that uh, shaped the remainder of that decade and maybe the one that followed. So NATO declared, you know, Article 5, an attack on one is attack on all. So you saw NATO coming to stand side by side with America. And... The intervention in Afghanistan was something that was regarded as being legitimate. The attacks were conducted by al-Qaeda, which had sanctuary inside Afghanistan under the Taliban regime. So even though there wasn't a UN resolution for that, it came under the use of self-defense under Article 51. And everyone regarded that as legitimate. But Iraq came under the crosshairs very quickly almost on the day of the attacks. And, you know, based on the assumption or the allegations that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, allegations that were proven to be false. So America didn't get a UN Security Council resolution. You remember Colin Powell going before the UN trying to make the argument that they had all these chemical weapons that could be used. The famous speech. The famous speech. And you can remember the photo of him holding up the vials of chemicals. Most of the information, all of the information that he laid out at that meeting was later proven to be incorrect. He didn't know that. He'd been given it by the intelligence community. And it was false information. So there wasn't a UN Security Council resolution. Kofi Annan, who was the UN Secretary General at the time, he said this intervention contravenes the UN Charter and is therefore illegal. So the the Iraq War lacked legitimacy right from the beginning. In a different universe, if it had led to a positive result, it would have been looked at differently. But it didn't. And President Bush... You know, he believed that America's national security, America's liberty depended on 
liberty everywhere because it was repressive regimes that produced terrorists. So bringing about democracy was, became a national security imperative. And after the invasion of Iraq, the US dismissed the security forces and dissolved the Ba'ath Party. And this was to put Iraq on new foundations so that it could become a democracy. But it ended up collapsing the state. There was no borders to prevent jihadis, no, so protection of the borders to prevent jihadis from coming in. And you saw the country descend into a civil war. Groups, people formed gangs to protect themselves. Militias flourished. The international jihadis started to come in and the country descended into civil war. And the architects, architects of the Iraq war had said it's going to change the region and change the world. And it did, but just not in the ways that they imagined. Do, do you think, Emma, I've often thought about this, what was it that happened in that moment that, you know, were some of the end of history folks, let's say it like in this, in this sort of very informal way, were some of those folks kind of inebriated with their successes and the idea that somehow the ends of history as they saw them were inevitable. And so why not speed up history in some way and do so through military means? I remember the jingoism. You know, I was a student in the UK when Iraq was invaded. And what stood out to me was the self-righteousness of the rhetoric, the belief that you had the moral high ground. And you saw that both in the Bush administration and Dick Cheney and their rhetoric, and also among um, the ally, the UK, where I was living, Tony Blair. Do you think that there's something to that, that they got away, they, they, they got just, yeah, inebriated by, by these ideas and felt like they were the masters of history and now had to accelerate it? I think, you know, in the 1990s, you had the rise of the neoconservative moment, movement in the U.S., who believed that America is an extraordinary, exceptional country that has been proven to have the best system with this liberal democracy, the capitalism that you described, and that it should use its power to bring democracy to the world. It's kind of like being the armed wing of Amnesty International. <laughs> we are going to reinvent the world as liberal democracies in our image. And you could argue that Tony Blair, he gave a speech in Chicago at the end of the 1990s where he sets out that you need to have this humanitarian intervention. And I think people felt we'd learned how to do it in the Balkans. Now, with what had happened with the terrorism emanating from the Middle East, we cannot leave any space ungoverned. The truth is there aren't really ungoverned spaces. They're just governed by people who we don't like. <laughs> but it became this prerogative. Now, in the US, most people were supportive of the war. In the UK, about 80% were against the war. So you saw the largest anti-war demonstrations. Yes. I mean, Tony Blair would have gone down as one of the best prime ministers in history. Had it not been. Had it not been for the war that has tarnished his reputation completely. Yeah. Yeah. So where do we go from there? I think Abu Ghraib 
is another important yeah. seminal moment in this story. No, I think you're absolutely right, because in this obsession with hunting down the terrorists, the fear of another attack, the want for revenge, we saw America violating the very values that as a standard bearer of democracy, it was supposed to espouse. Right. So we saw that with the torture of Abu Ghraib. We saw it with extraordinary rendition, kidnapping people in one country and taking them to another, the holding of people in detention without any due process, targeted killings. This new language this came into the lexicon. It's the targeted killings. I mean, killing, assassinating people in countries where America wasn't even at war. Then, of course, the collateral damage. Right. A euphemism Terrible. for all these innocent civilians who were just killed. Right, right. Hundreds of thousands. We will never know how many people died in these wars. Yeah. Not just because of direct action, but because of the collapse of the states that led to the civil wars. Right. Yes, exactly. Like uh, second order, third order deaths. So in parallel to all of this, we... I'm interested in the parallel strand of history in this decade between 2000 and 2010, where in Russia, and this will bring us ultimately to the Ukraine war, but in there's an interesting development in Russia. It starts out the decade on a, on a note of wanting to be cooperating with the West. Putin gives a famous speech in German language in the German parliament. There's a, 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 an infamous meeting where George Bush meets uh, Vladimir Putin and says something very Bush like about how he trusts him. I, I forget the... Ex- looked into his eyes. Yes, I looked into <laughs> his eyes, right? So there's this moment where Russia could be part of this. At some point, we had the G8 where Russia was um, a partner. And at the same time, this is also the decade where gradually Russia starts to develop a more antagonistic outlook uh, when it comes to its relationship with uh, the West. And then we also have something brewing again in the Middle East that is quite unexpected and ultimately leads up to the revolutions in 2010 and 2011. Um, let's talk a little more about, you know, this, the, the latter part of this, of this decade and, and how you see it, because you've obviously witnessed it. You've traveled extensively throughout the region. You lived in Iraq and uh, had a really unique insight into how that project unfolded and ultimately failed. So I'd love for you to talk about sort of this next chapter that came. It's very interesting because I think what was going on in the me- going on in the Middle East was the undermining of the international world order. And what was going on in the West at this time is the collapse of the Washington consensus brought about by the 2008 financial crisis. So both of those two different strands served to undermine the sense of the end of history, liberal democracy, the image of that. So I think for the 1990s, there was hope that Russia and China would be integrated into all of these institutions of the international order. So be the World Bank, the IMF, the World Trade Organization. Everything would emerge into this one order. So what we have in the Middle East 
is America undermining that very order. When Obama came to power, there was a hope. You know, you remember the first speech he gave in Cairo when he went. I came here to seek a new beginning. A new beginning. A new beginning in relations between America and the Middle East, America and the Muslim world more broadly. And there was a hope that, okay, the first decade of this century had been a really, really bad decade for the Middle East. There was hope that the second decade would be much better. And we saw the hope and the optimism that came in 2011 when those young people across the Middle East came out into the streets and squares and demanded justice, demanded dignity, demanded better futures. And, you know, they were connected through social media. They spoke with one voice across the Arab world. And there was this hope that this was going to be the fourth wave of democracy. We saw in the 1990s that Africa, Eastern Europe, Latin America, all moving towards democracy. And now it was felt that maybe the Arab world was going to go that way. And Ben Ali in Tunis got on a plane and, and left. To Saudi Arabia. <laughs> to Saudi. Mubarak stepped down in Egypt. Libya. Libya started to turn messy. And in Libya, there was a sense, you know, when Gaddafi said he was going to go after the people of Benghazi, there was a sense in the international community that we must stop that. That was a, going to be a massacre about to happen. And you saw the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, and the French President Sarkozy wanting to do a good intervention. I'm saying good in inverted commas because they wanted to prove that they weren't Blair and Mitterrand, that Europe could do this. And so they were pushing very hard for America to do something. And of course, Obama really, really didn't want to do anything about Libya. And he was pushed into it by the women around him, by Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, Sam Power. And Gaddafi had upset so many people in the Middle East that the Arab League was supportive of an intervention. So this was the first time, well, I mean, first of all, there was a UN resolution about Libya and the International Criminal Court. Then a second resolution using responsibility to protect for the first time that this was to be a NATO intervention to protect the people of Benghazi. But as soon as the intervention got going, then the mission quickly expanded to the removal of Gaddafi. And we saw his brutal murder and Libya's collapse into civil war and the fallout when people, the, he had these bodyguards who come from sub-Saharan Africa who then took all these weapons from Libya down there, which had knock-on effect. But it also had an impact on Syria. And I remember being in Syria on the summer of 2011 and the peaceful protests in Syria had been met with brutality by the Assad regime. And Obama had said, Assad must go. And when people in the Syrian opposition heard this, they thought, oh, there's going to be an intervention like there was in Libya. And you started to see an increase in the protests and the violence was going up. Now, Obama knew that he couldn't get a UN resolution because after the Libya fiasco 
in Libya, China, and Russia had abstained from voting on that. There was no way they were going to abstain on Syria. Every time they thought America was just using humanitarian intervention as a ruse to depose regimes again. There was no way he could get a UN resolution. There was, you know, he said in the end that, okay, but if Assad uses chemicals, that is a red line. Mm. And then Assad used chemicals. And at the last moment, Obama stepped back from military response. British Parliament refused to agree with it. So Obama stepped back from it and took Russia's last moment offer of removing the chemicals. And so Assad was let off the hook completely, continued to kill his people, used chemical weapons against them. And Putin was the guy who saved the Assad regime, showing Russia a player once more in the Middle East and an actor on the international scene. And very shortly after that, Putin then moves on Crimea. And once again, there is no response from the international community. This is the time when... This is the time when Putin is writing op-eds in the New York Times. And uh, I remember his his media campaign was very effective. It reached a lot of people and um, seemed to be part of a very elaborate project, a foreign policy project that was conceived around that time, of which a big element was, as you said, Russia's active, more active role, a direct engagement in the region where America had left um, a vacuum. You know, one thing that I've uh, found interesting, I read uh, at this stage many times, there are reports about how Gaddafi, Gaddafi's death haunted Putin. Apparently, he watches the video time and again, that horrific video, which many of us have seen. And it makes me wonder, you know, is, is that part of what changed in those years? The uh, more assertive Putin foreign policy seems to coincide uh, come or come on the back of the, the uh, intervention in Libya and the death of Gaddafi. It, it, could it be, could part of the story just be that Putin really fears that his fate could end up being very similar to that of Gaddafi? or Saddam Hussein, for that matter? I think Putin fears that America uses democracy promotion to overthrow regimes and to destabilize them. So whenever he sees, whether it's the color revolutions or the Arab Spring, he sees the hand of America behind all of this. And I think for him, stability, maintaining these stable regimes, autocratic or whatever, is important for regime survival, perhaps is the way that he sees it. And he wants to have a greater influence. So what happened in Syria was also an attempt by him to destabilize Europe When you look at the dropping of the barrel bombs, all those people who were fleeing Syria, most of them weren't fleeing ISIS. They were fleeing the Syrian regime. And we saw them 
fleeing, getting on those flimsy boats to cross the Mediterranean to seek refuge in Europe. A million, over a million people did that. So Putin deliberately trying to create this refugee crisis in Europe and at the same time supporting the far-right parties, the anti-immigrant parties in Europe. Bringing, you know, you can see the collapse of the Schengen Agreement. You can see the rise of the anti-immigration parties. You can see how it led to Brexit. Mm. Populist politicians saying... We need to regain control of our borders. Otherwise, all of these refugees are going to come flooding in. You can see how it it led in a way to the rise of Donald Trump. So Putin has in his mind that action to undermine what he sees as the West's attempt to expand and to destabilize regimes. Of course, the West doesn't see itself as destabilizing regimes, but I think that's probably how he sees it. It's incredible if you think about the return on investment and compare it to the resources that went into this, especially the the information and influence side of his project. You think about sowing division, confusion, spreading fake news through these information operations and then compare that to um, the political results that they yielded you know and that's not to say that it's a it's a straightforward causal relationship but it clearly those operations have been successful and it's really really incredible how a country you know Russia has a an economy and this is before the Ukraine invasion an economy the size of Spain um, it's um, demographically in a terrible position. Um, it has an economy even before the war that was not producing anything. It's a, a carbon-based economy. And so for a country like that and a regime such as Putin's to um, embark on this project that seems to have really been successful is pretty remarkable. I mean, they're acting essentially as spoilers and have an outsized impact that you would expect from a a true great power. Is that not right? Well, I mean, spoiler... Spoiler is one way of describing it. The tensions, the contradictions in the West are there. You can look and people say, look, these leaders, these elites, they brought us the Iraq war, they brought us the financial crash. What happens in the financial crash? Lots of people lost their homes and the bankers get bailed out. So all of these tensions are there. We can see a failure in our democracy. What Russia has been doing is exacerbating those things, but not creating them. Right. Those tensions are already there. And it's much easier to be an arsonist than it is to be somebody who puts out the fires and, and builds something. So Russia is not offering the world um, a counter model to liberal democracy, but it is certainly pushing wedges and lighting fires in places, but all the timber is there already to be set fire to. Let's talk a little bit about China. China is obviously for 
for so many reasons, uh, the key, or a key if not the key player to watch in the next few decades. I, I wonder, are we headed towards a G2 world? I guess is one way to phrase this question. As we leave the unipolar moment of the decades following 1990, are we entering into a new world order that is largely dominated by two powers, being China and the United States? I think some people feel it is heading that way and a new Cold War. But I don't think it's going to be the same as, you know, the US versus the USSR. Is this great power competition between these two dominant powers going to be the way that we view the world for the 21st century? I don't know. I mean, some people hope that America can renew its democracy, become city on the hill, return to some unipolar moment. I'm not sure that is the case. But the same issues that America is struggling with are also issues that China is struggling with. So it's struggling with the impact of technology. It's struggling to deal with the pandemic and this zero COVID policy has been devastating on it. It's struggling with social changes, all of these things. And I think there are so many of the same issues that America and China are struggling to deal with. I wonder if we're past peak America and past peak China. Mm -hmm. So I don't, you know, we might be in a world that, yes, they may be the two largest or the two biggest powers, but the world might not be evenly divided half and half. I think we're, we see many more middle powers rising. When you look at the Ukraine war, the countries that support the West, support Ukraine against Russia, the Western bloc, if we want to call them that, are about two-thirds of the world's GDP, but only one-third of the world's population. So you've got two-thirds are either neutral or Russia-leaning, and China is the sort of the pro-Russian neutrality, as Vincent Nee called it. But these middle powers can also be um, have outsized influence. So you can look at places like Africa. Now you've got countries from the Middle East. You've got Saudi. You've got the Emiratis. They're players in in the Horn of Africa. You can look what China's doing. You can look what Russia's doing. So it might be that we're not heading towards a G2. It might be that we're going into a more disorderly world, a more anarchistic world, in which countries don't agree with the rules of, of a game. Yeah. One of the reasons I think we're not headed towards a G2 world is because China does not, unlike the Soviet Union and the United States of America, does not have a universalizing ideology that it's seeking to spread. It seems to me that that was, would be an important element 
of uh, wanting to lead in that fashion in the world. And China doesn't have that. It seems a lot more interested in strengthening its diplomatic relations across all continents. Uh, it is using massive investments to advance those diplomatic goals. And so in some ways, the Chinese uh, imperial ambition is is almost more insidious, <laughs> you know, because they're actually cultivating all these partners gradually um, that um, will, you know, vote with them, say, at the United Nations, buy their products, and so on. But I, I haven't personally quite made sense of it all, but it's, that strikes me as an important difference, the fact that they're not there to spread some kind of ideological project. You know, at the beginning of this year, in February this year, just ahead of the Beijing Winter Games, you saw Putin and Xi come together and release this communique about an unlimited partnership. Really, it was their manifesto for their leadership of an international order. And, you know, they proclaimed themselves as democracies, right. leading the world in this fashion. And I think, you know, China's relationship with Russia is going to damage its reputation. China, you're not seeing all of these refugees fleeing Africa, fleeing the Middle East, trying to get to China. There isn't that universal appeal that America had with its image for the world or its crusade for the world or trying to set itself up as a standard bearer of democracy for the world. China is making mistakes. It has had the most miraculous growth Millions have come out of poverty. There is so much to admire and to respect about China. But now it is, I think it's losing the friends it could have made. And if everybody's just supposed to, you know, bend the knee, pay tribute, that's not an appealing philosophy. That's not an appealing ideology. And you don't see... You know, in America, you're not seeing either party really having a conciliatory approach towards China. I think people feel let down that there was this hope when you go back to Kissinger and Nixon and all of these things, there really was hope and respect for what China could be. Now, there's also potential for China to change, but I think it is worrying. We're just seeing she sort of being selected for a third term. As we speak. Sure. As we speak. The growing clampdown on the tech innovators. All of those things are really worrying signs. And even those who were very pro-China are now worried for China. Well, one of the ideas that came up really a thought I formed during the panel I took part in on, on Saturday about democracy was that one can think of the, um, the contract citizens have with an authoritarian regime as one where you are paid a dictatorship dividend. 
that dividend has been, or, or authoritarianism dividend, let's call it, that's been very, very high in China over the past few decades. And as China now enters uh, into a new um, phase of its economic development that is not nearly going to, not going to be nearly as uh, vibrant and, and uh, um, you know, it, I mean, it, it took 300 million people out of poverty uh, in the last decades. Uh, but now the economy is stalling. The growth is stalling. They have a massive real estate crisis. Demographically, uh, China is, is, is in a very difficult position. Uh, I, I'll get the numbers wrong, but I feel I feel like um, I read somewhere that it's there's a precipitous decline in the overall Chinese population that that we'll see even in our lifetimes. It's yes, incredible. it's it's pyramided to the inverted from the one child right. policy. Exactly. So you look. I mean, if you're a young person now, how many old people do you have to support? Right. So its population is going down, while Africa's population is. Exactly, it's going it's the opposite exploding. direction. It's exploding. So and so and she enters into this time with uh, you know he's he's he, he's going to have his third term, possibly a fourth term. So you know he's on the path to becoming maybe in his mind a new Mao Zedong, and it is happening at a time when a lot of the dictatorship dividend uh, will be very costly for China to pay because the growth is stalling. And therefore, I would assume that repression is going to be intensified in China because that's the only tool you have to maintain a system uh, that is uh, undemocratic. You, you kind of have only the other the only other thing in your toolbox is going to be repression, surveillance, and AI-enabled surveillance. So I'm not very optimistic for you know China in the next 10 or 15 mm. years I think it's going to be a, an uncomfortable place to be I mean I think a comment that you made in your democracy panel was that democracies hadn't shown citizens an economic benefit from moving towards democracy and what we've seen for the last 26 or the last 16 years since I think it's 2006 is democratic backsliding so we have seen the rise of China with an authoritarian state capitalism showing economic progress. If we're now getting to a stage where democracies are backsliding and authoritarian regimes can't show an economic dividend, are we going to get into authoritarian backsliding as well? Then what are we going to? That's, an inter that's a very interesting idea. What would that look like? Because... I feel like even three or five years ago, it seemed that the competition or the, the two major ideas that uh, were worth aspiring to for governments around the world were either liberal democracy or an authoritarianism that guarantees uh, economic prosperity and safety for citizens without political rights. It seems that that calculation is no longer as neat as we look at the economic crisis, as we look at a world after COVID, as we look at a world after uh, the failure of uh, Putin's uh, military adventure in Ukraine. It's really, really interesting that uh, 2022 offers a very different vantage point than even 2018. Yes, and I think 
you know, our international order, the one we have today, came out of World War II. And that was a very different era. And it's based on nation states, it's based on pre-digital era. But when you look at the world today, and we have so many things that are transnational, and we're still working on an old system, and that is the challenge. So power is so much more diffused now. It's not just in nation states. It's in companies, it's in communities, it's in civil society, it's in people. And yet our operating system is analog. It's a real challenge for us. So how are we going to deal with the planet? How can we deal with pandemics? These all require global cooperation, global collaboration. So how do we create that new operating system that works for this century? You teach grand strategy at the Jackson School, now school, uh, of global affairs here at Yale. And uh, the grand strategy course is a storied institution at, the, at, at Jackson. Um, and I think with you teaching it at this particular moment in time, it's, it's just so, so important uh, as a field, as a field to, to study because a lot of the answers to these very, very important and intractable perhaps problems lie in um, the field of, of grand strategy. And I think you touched on something really important. You know, how can one think of areas where cooperation among great powers is possible on the one hand and what might be some of the areas where competition will just be inevitable because the interests are um, not cannot be aligned between different great powers i think you know as human beings we're competitive creatures that's kind of you know that's in our that's in our dna it's the way that we are made but that competition can also be something that can be harnessed for really positive things. And it's how to change the incentives that we have. Because if we frame strategy in terms of great power competition, that might be descriptive of our environment, but if we frame that as a strategy, that is just going to take us to disaster. That's just a rush to the bottom. So how can we frame things in terms of how do we save our planet how do we measure human well-being? So it shouldn't just be on GDP. Right. It's all of these things are interconnected. And I think the challenge is to reimagine the sort of world that we want to live in and to look at how do we create that world? How do we set incentives that a country's soft power will be measured because of its, or measured by its levels of inequality? And the countries that got the least inequality are the ones that are most admired around the world. The countries that are contributing most to the green revolution, the countries that are getting to net zero, the countries that are helping others to achieve these things. Everybody wants to be admired. That's another thing. People want to be seen as the best. And if we think of the best not being on who's the wealthiest, but who gives the most, or who's got the least inequality, then we're starting, we're setting different incentives for the ways that individuals and the ways that countries can behave. But it's imagining that. And that sort of brings me back to 
where we began, which was at this reunion, where you start to see people really tackling those big issues. How do we use tech for good? How do we ensure we've got sustainable food systems? How do we capture carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in rocks? And you think, gosh, we're just 170 people having these conversations. But we are a microcosm of the world. And if we have that language that is of global solidarity, that language is of new internationalism, that we are then coming together to look at all our creative abilities. How can we harness that to address these key issues? And I think, you know, it's something like that weekend where you realize, yes, we've got agency. We can't just sit here complaining about all the problems of the world. We need to understand them. And then we need to come up with strategies on how to deal with them. And those strategies, it can't be just sit back and wait for government. We have to use our networks. We have to create new institutions. We have to create new ways of operating. But it's within human genius to do this. We've got that. And that's, that's on us now, on us for today and us to build a better tomorrow. That is a wonderful and beautiful way to end our conversation. Thank you so, so much, Emma. This Thank has been you. wonderful. And uh, the next episode, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence with Kirsten Rolf. Uh, I think that's going to be a very, very interesting conversation as well. Thank you, Emma. This was, this was lovely. Thank you, Belabes. Today's episode of The Big Picture was produced by Wissal Zibda and Ryan McAvoy. It was made possible with the support of the Yale World Fellows Program at the Jackson School of Global Affairs. Our theme music was composed by Ravi Krishnaswamy at Copilot Music. For updates on future episodes, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Bella Bess. Thank you so much for tuning in.